Thank you for being here. I'm grateful that we can just say, hey, we're going to get together on Sunday at 11 to worship God and people show up. Every time it happens, I, I really, I'm just in awe of your desire to be here. I know for some it's routine. This is what you've always done Sunday morning. Um, but I hope that you seek to be here intentionally. And for others who this isn't your normal rhythm of life, chose to be here, desire to be here, and are hopeful and expectant in being here, that God will speak. And so I'm sharing with you in that. I'm hopeful God will speak this morning in a way that applies to each of us individually, but also a way that the Spirit draws us together to be His church. There's a mission before us, and I want to be equipped for that mission, that God would be glorified in how we live our lives. And so I want to say to every Christian in the room, whatever it is you're doing in life, whatever experience you have, or whatever stage of life you find yourself in, or, or status that society has classified you in, whatever gender or ethnicity, whatever social or economic status you have, the gospel applies. No matter where you belong, what subculture you claim as your own, whether you're married or whether you're single, divorced or widowed, whatever the case, everything in the Word of God, if you're a Christian, applies. The gospel is good news for you. It is hope for you. Everything that Christ has accomplished and attained is yours. You share it with Him as co-heirs. It's yours. I hope that you feel that. No matter who you are, what you look like, what anyone has said about you, how you've been classified, you belong to God because of Christ. And you are in Him. We seek to be healthy. We want to be a healthy people, not just a knowledgeable people, a well-behaved people, but a healthy people living with gospel intentionality in all of life, exactly where God has placed you and, and wherever you were when He called you to follow Him, exactly who you are, sanctified by the work of the gospel, called to the mission. So, all that being said, you should stop longing for something else. If you're in Christ, don't long for something else so that you can feel more complete. Exactly who you are in Christ is who you should be. Everything you could need, everything you would desire can be found in Jesus because He is who you desire. It, it, there's this hunger in us and we search to fill, fulfill that hunger. Well, Christ satisfies. We don't always know how or why, but it's truth. He is why you live. He is who you serve in all of life in such a way that more and more people would come to enjoy Him and be changed by His gospel. That's our vision. And this is what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He talked about sex. He talked about marriage. He talked about divorce and remarriage and singleness. And in all of it, all he's saying is exactly who you are in Christ. When he called you to follow him is who you should be. Now, it should go without saying that doesn't include sinful habits and hangups. We should repent constantly and turn back to him. But whatever status you have, it's okay. The gospel applies. And he's going to illustrate that in several ways. And this morning, specifically, we're going to speak to singleness. Uh, but before we get there, we're going to look at this, this middle passage in the chapter uh, where he, he's making an application to everyone. And so we're going to start in verse 17 to see what the Apostle Paul has to say to these Christians in Corinth who live in a culture much like our own. It says, only, and this word can be translated many ways, nevertheless, except, but Paul's point is, 
He's about to tell us something that expands upon what he has just said. The implications are about to be presented. It's, it's all connected. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So he's saying you're not special. I'm not giving you special instruction. It's not just for you. It's for everyone who would call themselves a Christian. This applies to all believers. And it's an affirmation that God is sovereignly ruling over every individual life. God is in control of everything. He's designed your specific life in your specific circumstances with purpose and called you to live your life. This is, it's literally to walk. He's called you to walk as a new creation with a new mind, with a new heart, with new hands. As a new creation, God has called you to believe the gospel, to be changed by the gospel, to be in your context as a gospel per- person. And then he illustrates it in two ways. Verse 18 Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. First illustration is if you were a Jew, that's who you are. Don't try to undo some Jewish things so you can somehow be a better Christian. And if you weren't a Jew, don't try to become Jewish so you could somehow be a better Christian. Believing Jews, Christian Jews, need not be proud or ashamed of their Old Testament covenant and practices. And Gentiles need not perform Jewish rites and rituals in order to be better Christians. If the Jews started to to follow all the ways of the Gentiles, thinking that was going to make them a better Christian and denying their ethnicity and their history, they would alienate themselves from Jewish people. That would make it much more difficult to reach other Jews. Who better to reach a Jew than a Jewish Christian? Likewise, Who better to reach the Gentiles than someone who's familiar with Gentile life and customs? So why take on new rituals and new practices and traditions and then alienate yourself from a people who could benefit from you being a Gentile who's now a Christian? Neither is necessary to live for Christ, is his point. Except for here, it's not about salvation. It's about Christian living. It's about how a Christian should function in the world. So in Galatia, where they were saying you have to be a Jew in order to be a Christian... So you have to practice these things first, be circumcised first, then you can be saved. Paul spoke with much more deliberate and harsh language, directly attacking the heresy. But here he's, he's merely using this serious thing, not speaking to it morally, but speaking to it as a practical example of be who you are when God called you. And Paul says, verse 19, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. That's what matters. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. So all should see true circumcision is of the heart. And its evidence is when you worship Jesus. If you really belong to Christ, here's all you do. You worship Jesus in all of life. And the next illustration is is a little more difficult to grasp. But he says in verse 21, were you a bondservant? It's literally slave. It's not the same type of servant that, that a deacon is. It's not... Diakonos, it's not that word, it's doulos, which is a slave when you were called. Do not be concerned about it. That is a perplexing thing to say. There's much to be said about slavery in, in this culture as compared to the horrific chattel slavery of American history. And namely, how the church responds to it is, is the difference. Because in American history, in American church, for some reason, the church fathers in, in our country didn't see slavery as that big of a deal. 
It, was, it, it seemed like they were worshiping white Jesus instead of the real one. There was this, they didn't see it as a dehumanizing of human beings, whereas in, in the New Testament culture, it was more of a, a way of life, a class of life. Still wrong, but the slaves in this period had an opportunity to store up money they were actually making in order to purchase their own freedom. But, but Paul's point here is not to speak to the morality of slavery, but instead use it as an example, saying that if you were slaved when you're saved, that's okay. You can, that, can, that can still be. That can still be your status and you can be a Christian. It doesn't hinder your obedience to Christ. But now as a slave, you should be changed by the gospel and Christ is ultimately who you're serving. And he writes of that elsewhere. And then he adds this caveat, this parenthetical, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity because he realizes slavery is not fit for any human being. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become a bondservant of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called there, let him remain with God. As new creations, we seek peace. We seek to do good. We, we love well. We, we fight for justice. But as Christians, we see supremely is the spiritual reality. The, the spiritual regeneration first and foremost matters. It is a work of the Spirit that changes the hearts, the hands, and the minds of men. And then an abundance of new minds and new hearts and new hands change the culture. We aren't to change the culture like dynamite changes things. We're to change the culture like yeast leavens a lump of bread. It's a slow process, and there's few of us, but drastic change can come over time. First century slavery, though different, was still broken and unjust and needed to be abolished. But Paul's point is simply, slaves, don't, don't be disobedient. Don't rebel. That's not how a Christian behaves. It doesn't mean you can't be obedient to Christ. You don't need to worry about being a slave, is his point. But given your opportunity for freedom, by all means, take it. The truth is, we are all enslaved to Christ. And we're to be enslaved to nothing in this world. Christians should not be overly concerned with changing their current circumstances. As if that's going to make us somehow more able to obey Christ or a better Christian. That's the point of the passage. Wherever you live, wherever you work, wherever you go to school, live for Jesus, work for Jesus, be educated for Jesus. If it's a dead-end job and you hate your boss, you're there for Christ. If it's an education you don't even know if you want to pursue, you've changed your degree several times, you, you never get along with your advisors, it's going to take you another year longer than you thought, whatever the case, be there for Christ. If your family is, is non, full of non-believers and it's a struggle, remain for Christ. Christian mission is compatible with every economic status, with every gender, with every race, with every culture. We are in Christ and He is our ultimate identity. Galatians 3.28 is to that end. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. If you are all one in Christ Jesus, there's, there's no distinction if you are one in Christ Jesus. That is, the Lord has you where you are with purpose. Surely there's distinction. I can tell you're a woman or a man. I can tell your ethnicity by looking at you. But your identity is ultimately in Christ. You're not, 
shaped by, formed by anything else in your life. You're shaped by and formed by Christ. If a millionaire is saved, is she to give up all of her riches to be a better Christian? No. She's to be who she is, changed by the gospel, fueled by the gospel. Likewise, if a servant is saved, are they to flee from being a servant to be a better Christian? No, they're to be a better servant, changed and fueled by the gospel. Is a wife to give up being a wife in order to be a better Christian? No, she's to be a better wife, changed and fueled by the gospel. This is how the gospel works in the Christian life. Not that you change your status because now you're a Christian. You flee, you flee the sexual and moral things. You flee the habitual sins in your life. But you don't flee who you are to be a better Christian. Christianity takes over your life. That is gospel saturation. That's the point of the series. Our lives are now saturated by the gospel. We're shaped by it. We're no longer who we used to be. We live as we are as new creations. Now we're going to finish this chapter. I'm going to try to move a little more quickly through it, and then we're going to have some application at the end focused on singleness because this is about, there's, he's about to make that transition in verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed. So when Paul says now concerning, he's moving on to the question. He's saying, I said all that. Now I'm going to answer the question you asked me. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord. Again, that's not, this isn't from God. That's, I didn't hear of any teaching Jesus had on this topic. But here is, in my judgment, the one who is by the Lord's mercy equipped and trustworthy, the one who is an apostle of God. Here's how you should respond. Verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for you, a person to for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if, you, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. So this worldly troubles relates to verse 26, present distress. We don't know exactly what that present distress is. It could be referring to this pervasive pagan culture that's in Corinth. It could be a specific issue that they've written about that he doesn't tell us about. It could be the Mediterranean famine that's going on in this context. It could also be this urgency of work for the kingdom that needs to be done before Christ returns in the second coming. It could be all of the above. The point is, he's saying, I think it's better for you to remain as you are given the current circumstances. Verse 29, this is what I mean. Brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as, those, as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. This is obviously a reference to the fact time is short. Time on earth as an individual is short. Your season of life is brief. Before Christ returns in the grand scheme of things is a brief period of time. And Paul is urging us to consider how temporary things are. In view of eternity, things are very temporary. Do not be controlled by the temporary things. As we fix our eyes on Christ, we see Him being increasingly, increasingly all we need. Clarity is increased as we fix our eyes on Christ. We sense 
the priority of things in our lives shifting from what we once thought was important to Christ and his kingdom as being the most important thing. There's an urgency to sharing Christ with others now in our lives. The things of this world grow strangely dim, duller and duller in comparison to having Christ. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. We do not desire what the world desires. We are not to be controlled by worldly ambition. Paul is saying, don't just do what everybody else is doing. Don't just follow the customs of the world. There isn't enough time to be wasted on those things. Why is he saying all this? Verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how, do we, how to please a wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in the body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. His point isn't to condemn marriage. His point is single-minded focus on the Lord is more easily accomplished by an unmarried individual, whereas a married person must be concerned with the issues of family and responsibilities. Single people, it's a well-known thing, tend to be more flexible with their time and their resources than a married person. Verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, so this idea of betrothed, it could be translated virgin. This is, this, this is the idea of a single person who's never been married. So even if you're dating, this applies to you. You're not, you're not married, then you're a single person. So, so he's talking if you're planning to get married, if your idea is to get married. If, he has passion, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under, no or being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, sorry, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, but he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that to have the Spirit of God. And I think that to have the Spirit of God. He's, he's speaking on behalf of the Lord. Paul clearly wants all believers to be focused on kingdom issues. I certainly agree with this. However, some may take issue with the approach because it does seem to present this depreciation of marriage in comparison with singleness. And God has spoken elsewhere in Scripture through Paul and through other authors to hold up marriage. In fact, he created marriage in the garden. The first two beings were to be one. It is the design. It is the norm in Scripture according to the design of God. Personally, I know that I'm a better person, a better husband and father and pastor because of Amelia. I know that I've been sanctified by my marriage and I see Paul uphold marriage as this holy thing. So let me clearly communicate. The focus here isn't about which is better, singleness or marriage. The focus is on benefiting the kingdom of God. 
It's not a dogmatic rule of of whether you should marry or stay single. Paul had a spirit-led purpose to say to the Corinthians and even to us today, this should not be turned into a universal practice which negates other inspired texts. This is the rule of interpreting Scripture. You can't negate other texts based on this one. However, there is something to be said about a general rule. Celebrate marriage, but there's something to be said about singleness. That said, Paul is obviously happy that the Lord has given him contentment in his celibacy. He highly recommends it, strongly recommends it. Be single because he sees it's much more beneficial to the kingdom than to be distracted by the things of marriage. It allows a single-minded devotion to the Lord's work. But it is a gift that he knows not everyone has. And that's why he says, if, if you must marry, then go ahead. It's not a sin to marry. And when we say singleness is a gift, I don't think I've ever met a single person who desires that gift. I think usually people are afraid, do I have that gift? I don't want it. So when we say singleness is a gift, I think it's easier to consider marriage a gift also and compare the two in that way. They're both a gift, as in they are an opportunity given by God to worship Him, to exalt Christ, to make much of Him. So if you are single, I think currently you have this opportunity to worship God in your singleness, to make much of Christ, to demonstrate to all who may see you that Jesus is all you need. Just as if you were married, you have this opportunity not to worship your spouse. And I would say don't be consumed by making your spouse happy. Don't be distracted by the, in the ways Paul's talking about in here, but instead make much of Christ in your marriage. It seems Paul's purpose is not to recommend singleness as much as it is to maximize kingdom work. All should remain as they are to be a gospel people in your context, where you are. If single, focus on serving Christ in your singleness. If married, focus on serving Christ. It's not a problem you're married. Focus on serving Christ in that marriage. Believers should have gospel-saturated lives, whatever your status, which means that we are family of missionary servants devoted to the mission of God, building His kingdom with lives on mission, not compartmentalizing Jesus to this category of life and then seeking satisfaction in marriage or, or whatever it is you're seeking satisfaction in, but seeing Christ overtake your life, being a slave to Him, suffering with Him, enduring with Him, seeing that the things here are temporary and we are to be used to His glory elsewhere. We use the world and its resources to serve the kingdom. Otherwise, the world and its resources will use you. We put our sin to death. Otherwise, your sin will kill you. That's the idea of the passage. But I think it leads us to speak specifically to singleness. So for those of you who came just for that, here we go. Singles in the house. All my single ladies, where are you at? I'm just kidding. It's imperative, I think, that we speak to singleness with the concept of the New Testament in mind because we, we can easily be conformed to thinking of singleness like the world does or even like the world of old does. It used to be that if you were single, it was a shame to your family because women brought benefit to the family through, through dowry or however uh, being married. And then men brought honor to the family by carrying on the family name by being married. So singleness in the Old Testament especially was to be shamed. But in the New Testament, Christ gives this new idea when he speaks of it. Immediately following 
his, his discourse on divorce with his disciples. They're kind of confused and they're asking questions and they've reasoned that maybe it's just best never to marry. And so Jesus answers them in Matthew 19 and elsewhere, but specifically in Matthew 19 by saying, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs, and he uses eunuchs here um, not as the castrated man who served the women in the kingdom, but as a single. This is speaking to celibacy. So for those who are eunuchs, or for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have, been made, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So Jesus is presenting something brand new. Two things that aren't, but a third that is. Three categories of singleness. First, those who are celibate from birth. So we could categorize some in here. Those who were born with some sort of physical or emotional or social or mental limitation that would prevent them from being married ever. Um, or those who are perhaps asexual, which I, I thought was a myth. I actually met an asexual individual recently, just feels no sexual attraction to anyone. Or perhaps they, there are those who are, are feeling a same-sex attraction, a homosexual attraction, and know that they in Christ cannot participate in a homosexual relationship because it's explicit in scriptures against the God of word. So they are by choice remaining celibate. There can be categories. I don't want to say that specifically you, you can be born homosexual. I think there's nuance to this. There are certainly inclinations in, in our nature, our sinful nature that would lead us to this. So I would say perhaps from their earliest memory, they have same-sex attraction. And then there are those in the second category, celibates made by men. And I would say that these are widows or those who are divorced or those who are not yet married but desire marriage. So life circumstances have made them celibate. And then this third category is the new one because it's unheard of to desire singleness. But Christ says there are those who vow to renounce marriage in order to give themselves fully to kingdom work. So we have these three categories of singleness. If you're single in the house today, you probably can find yourself in one of those categories. And all that's to follow applies to you. If, if we consider how we view singleness in the church today, I think that uh, there are certain ways that even, even those higher up in the church would consider, or we could consider a shame. Because I know men who are, are great pastors, great leaders, who have not been hired by churches because they're single. I know, I know men and women who are great servants and love well, but aren't considered leaders in the church because they're single. And I think that it is a shame because certainly God has designed singleness for a purpose. And we view it as there's a lacking for some reason. And this view that singleness is lacking combats the biblical view of singleness. That Jesus and the Apostle Paul, who were single, lay out for us fairly clearly. They seem to suggest singleness is advantageous to kingdom work, not just acceptable, but it somehow is better. And there are men and women in the New Testament who prove this. Silas and Luke and Titus and Apollos and Phoebe and Lydia and Philip has four unmarried daughters who all demonstrate that singleness can benefit the kingdom of God greatly. 
And I think it would benefit us greatly to consider how we may have embraced a worldly view of singleness and ignored the biblical one. According to the Bible, a single life should be desirable to the glory of God. Singleness for at least a season, perhaps for life, is not just acceptable, but it's good. And it's good because it's a gift from a good God. Marriage, though beneficial in its own right, is not eternal. We don't take that on with us. So at least in that practical sense, singleness is an eternal benefit to the glory of God. It represents something, marriage represents something that is spiritually a reality. Certainly it's Christ and his church, and it's to be leveraged in that way to make much of Christ, but it's merely a physical representation of something eternally significant. We must be cautious not to elevate marriage above singleness and and in value because God doesn't do that, but he also doesn't elevate singleness over marriage as much as he does that both should be used for the mission. So Jesus tells us to lay up our treasures in heaven, to seek first the kingdom of God. Success and happiness are not defined by your physical possessions or your marital status. What does it profit, if you allow me to paraphrase, what does it profit a man to gain a wife and lose his soul? In the same frame of thought, I would caution singles, do not live as if you can find satisfaction in life apart from Christ. Don't live as if marriage is going to somehow complete you. And if you're married, don't shame singles into thinking that marriage somehow will complete them. Think more, we should all think more on building the kingdom than we do on building a family. I, I know that I'm not a single. In fact, I don't, I don't, it's kind of a mystery as to when you classify yourself as a single. Because I was married at 23. So I technically have been single in my life. I was single in college. But I was married shortly after I graduated. And, and I never at any point thought, I'm a single. It was just never something that sank in. So maybe it's something that happens as you get older and you realize all your friends are getting married and you think, okay, I, I'm single. Or, or maybe you've experienced a loss in life, a loss of your spouse through divorce or death, and you now realize you're single. Whatever the case, I know that I don't know singleness like a single person would know it. So I did some research and some asking around to several singles, how do you experience life? What challenges do you have? What struggles do you have? What benefit is there? And then I did some online research from some men and women in Christ who some have been made single by life circumstances and desire marriage and some who have chosen singleness. And I learned a lot. In fact, I was convicted in some ways. And I hope that I can share some bad theology of singleness and some things you just shouldn't say uh, in effort to help us love singles better and not only love them, but to include them more in the work of the church. So just some ideas. If you have ever said this, stop saying it. Once you are content with where you are with Christ, the right one will come along. Now this is flawed because it's as if we're saying contentment somehow manipulates God into giving you what you want. Or marriage in itself is ultimate and that's your aim. So just be content in Christ and then you'll get to be married. It's flawed, bad theology of singleness. Maybe you're just being too picky and you should lower your standards. As if God is frustrated and needs broader parameters in which to work to bring you your soulmate. Soulmate may also be something else you should stop saying. I don't know how that works. 
You'll get married when God has you ready for it. Just hang in there. As if marriage is guaranteed, but God needs to make sure you're properly sanctified. And those who were married were already properly sanctified, so they were able to enjoy the benefits of marriage. It's bad theology. Maybe it's just asking questions like, how are you still single? Or don't you want to get married? Or saying things like, maybe try Christian Mingle. I hear some, there's some success there. These are actual quotes that single people told me they wish people would stop saying to them. If, if, you, if you say anything that suggests that singleness is somehow insufficient, if, if you say anything that suggests somehow you're not a complete human being until you're married, you should stop saying that. Marriage is not the remedy to a deficiency. Marriage is a gift of God, and so is singleness. In fact, most singles I spoke to, believe it or not, don't want your help. They don't want to hook up. They don't want you to tell them about your single friend at work. They don't want you to introduce them as your single friend. They don't want you to see them in any way categorized by their single status. They want to be a brother or sister in Christ. And there was one individual, just to let you know, who welcomes matchmaking. I'll let him tell you who he is because he's here. (laughs) But overall, they want to be considered included, but they, they don't want you to just include them out of obligation. In fact, they know when you do that. They know when they're the obligatory third wheel. They'd rather be welcomed company. So go on your dates, enjoy your family time, and then make time to include singles in your life. Some of them aspire to be married one day, and they need the benefit of seeing you in marriage. Some of them may not, but they need the benefit of community in Christ. Relationship is something we all need. Marriage isn't. So there are some who have been divorced or widowed, and they also encourage you to no longer say things like, yeah, I don't think I could remarry if I lost my spouse. Or you sure are lucky because now you can do so much more that you want to do with your time. It may sound beneficial in your head, but it's alienating coming out of your mouth. All of them recognize there are blessings to singleness. They found freedom to make decisions, both big and small in their lives, whether it's what to eat or what to watch on TV or moving or buying a car or leaving the country. They feel the freedom in their life to make those big decisions that maybe married, keep, married people have to sit down and calculate and consider other things. Most also saw the freedom to serve and minister to others with more freedom and less hesitation because of the flexibility in their schedules. But of course, singleness has its challenges and its sufferings and its pitfalls. And so without any exception... There is suffering in singleness. There are those who are single because of a loss of a spouse and they face pain, the pain of what could or what could have been and the pain and mystery of what they've lost and will it ever exist again. And there are those who have never been married and they suffer a pain that says what may never be and a mystery that says why hasn't it happened yet? There's no doubt pain and suffering in singleness. They each told me in unique ways, the most difficult part of singleness is the loneliness, the longing for companionship and the fear that it will never exist. Feeling like they are missing out on something others are enjoying. 
along with the fighting the temptations of jealousy for those married in their lives and, and the lust for what they don't have and the worship of the American dream that says you have to be married and have a golden retriever and a white picket fence. And they're tempted to just settle for someone so that they can just have someone. So no doubt, singleness is challenging. But to that end, I found a quote by a guy named Ron Belgal, who is actually a believer who has same-sex attraction and chooses celibacy because he knows it honors God. And he wrote, Is celibacy difficult? Yes. So is marriage. So is grad school. Life is pain, princess. Which is a quote from The Princess Bride. Is it frustrating at times? Yes. But watch someone raising toddlers sometime, and, and it may change your perspective on the challenges of celibacy. Have there been times when I want to give up? Yes. But is it worth it? Yes. Do I regret it? No. It's no doubt challenging, but life is challenging. Everyone suffers. The grass is not greener on the other side. But church, if you are in Christ, the reward is great. Our Savior is sufficient. Always, no matter who you are, whatever your status in life, Whatever your pain, Christ is sufficient. When I first considered singleness, I told you I dealt with some feelings of conviction, and I'm guilty for, at times, considering singleness as insufficient, and I repent of that. And if you've ever heard me say anything that that leans in that direction or to that effect, please forgive me. I don't want to alienate any brother or sister. I don't want to belittle any giftedness. But this idea in me developed, the the idea that there was a lacking developed out of sympathy. A sympathy for the loneliness I see expressed, for the pain I see expressed. Ignoring my own pain and my own struggles and the difficulties of marriage and parenting, I sympathize with my brothers and sisters struggling in singleness. But I want to tell you now, considering the view of Scripture and all that it takes to be the church, I, I don't pity you. And I don't envy you either, but I value your gift. And I'm grateful for what you add to this body of believers. Whether it's permanent or temporary, I see your singleness as good. And I aim to see you flourish in your singleness to the health of this church and to the benefit of the kingdom. As we seek diversity as a church in every category, for the health of the crossing church and to the glory of God, I hope you see more clearly as a single person that you are a part of God's design and that you benefit this church. And, and to the idea of accepting singleness, Paige Benton Brown, a, a minister, a Presbyterian minister, who is single not by choice, she desires marriage, she's wrote, I am not single because I am too spiritually stable to deserve a husband or too spiritually mature to need one. I'm single because God is good and this is his best for me. And that's what Paul's teaching He's saying, it's simple and profound, but he's saying whatever status you find yourself in right now is what God has for you, and it's for the good of the kingdom. It may involve heartache and struggle, but it's for you, and it's good. He's designed it that way because he is good. Truly, your Father knows what's best for you. Your God has not withheld anything good from his children. Do you trust him? Do you believe the gospels at work in your life? John Calvin taught the secret to sanctification is interaction of the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. 
marriage, married people and single people alike are sinners capable of considering themselves. We're all very good at thinking about ourselves. The problem is we think too little of God. In fact, every problem we have is a theological one. The Lord is good. He is sufficient. If we are dissatisfied with life, it doesn't speak to your status in life. It speaks to your view of God. What do you believe about your God? Is he good? It is impossible for him to be against you if you are in Christ. He is not punishing you. You no longer are under wrath from God because you are in Christ. There is nothing wrong with you, single person. There is nothing wrong with you if you are in him. You are lovely. You are beautiful. You are holy. You are blameless. You are perfect. Celebrate that. Now, for those who find yourself satisfied in your singleness, there's also a warning because there's danger. Singleness can easily be a euphemism for self-centeredness. And seeing the significance of life or valuing your single life because it's, you don't have to deal with someone else. Because you don't have to deal with the hard work of somebody else. You can have your me time without it being interrupted. That's no doubt a self-centered view of singleness, but all the same, marriage is not the remedy. Paul's message is singleness is not about you. The gift is undivided opportunity to serve the Lord, not yourself. And though a spouse can be sanctifying, marriage is not a significant or sufficient countermeasure to your self-absorption. Marriage isn't what you need. Jesus is who you need. The only antidote for your egocentrism is the gospel. In my past sympathy for singled people, I erroneously thought if I could just find you somebody, that was going to somehow complete you like Tom Cruise. Might be a reference that people don't get. And though a spouse can be sanctifying, it's not the answer. Christ is the answer. Christ came to save us from ourselves, from our sin nature, and make us new. His death and resurrection has saved you from self-worship. Whether you're single or you're married, stop worshiping idols, worship Jesus. Now we are sanctified through relationship, and marriage is one of those relationships. Christian maturity requires relational richness. You must be in community. But the range of relational options is not limited to marriage. All we're saying here is be around people. Be in community. And the more you're off away from community, the more difficult it's going to be, whether you're married or you're single. So married couples, as one, be in community. Single people, as one, be in community. Because we have a covenantal triune God who has existed eternally and infinitely within the loving relationship of the Trinity, our relationships with fellow believers are necessary because of who we are in Christ and who we are in the Spirit, and who we are in the Father. That is a covenantal community. That's why we have covenantal membership here. Our sanctification to the glory of God exists together. It's my hope that within the Crossing Church, we will no longer live as if singles are insufficient and can be apart. As soon as they get married, they're going to benefit the church. It's my hope that no one would ever feel alone because we are not alone. Singles, you are not alone. 
You are not impoverished in your singleness and you are not second-class Christians until you get married. See that your life and now, your life in Christ as a single person has benefit. Your life, to paraphrase again, your life now that you live in Christ in your singleness is for the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you that you would have all you need in Christ. Singled men and women are used by God to advance the kingdom in mighty ways, even outside of the New Testament. To give you a couple examples, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Lottie Moon, known as great members of the church, great men and women of God, never married. Married couples, see the life you now live in Christ as married people for Christ to love him, to find all you need in him because he gave his life up for you, that you would have all you need in him. Yes, you should model what it looks like to belong to Christ. You should invite single people into your life. You should put on display for the world to see Christ in his church within the loving relationship of your marriage. But superior to that, you should model Christ and his bride with eternal mindset, not set on loving your spouse, making your spouse happy, worshiping your spouse in every way. The elevation of marriage to the condemnation of singleness is sinful. Your value, your identity is not tied up in your marital status. It's rooted in the redemptive status of knowing Christ. It's not about you or what you've done. It's about Christ and what he's done. And we're made complete in Christ. So whether you are married or remarried, divorced and now single, widowed and now single, or never married, in the end, what we see most clearly is the Lord is glorified by our singled-minded devotion to Him. Our work for the kingdom, our longing is not satisfied by anything in this world, only by Christ, because He satisfies. Christian, whatever it is you're doing in life, do it for Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. No matter who we are, no matter where we find ourselves, I pray that your spirit would comfort us in our pain and in our suffering. Lord, I pray that we would find conviction where we have lived with sinful mindsets, that we'd have our minds renewed by the work of your spirit. We'd repent of our sin and we'd worship you with our brothers and sisters, united in covenantal membership to your glory, on mission as a family of servants, praising you in all of life, knowing that your gospel changes all of life. Lord, you are good, and you are always good. Every gift you give is good. Excite in us what might be dead. Save the lost sanctify the saved, be glorified in this work of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.